Welcome to, um, to the last event in St. Olaf's Focus the Nation, uh, two days of, of events. Thanks to you all for coming tonight, and thanks to so many of you for coming last night and all day today. The turnout today was really quite wonderful. In the World Cafe, one of the questions that we asked was, uh, what was the most frightening thing that you heard in the last couple of days? And what was the most hopeful thing? And several different people said that the most hopeful thing that was simply the number of people who showed up. Um, that single students don't always show up for things like these sorts of things, and here you all are. Um, and it's pretty remarkable to think that, um, that this many people care about this sort of thing. Um, as you know, Focus the Nation is a nationwide thing. About a thousand colleges are going to be doing this over the month of January. Uh, most colleges are going to be doing this on January 30th and 31st. For those of you that are around in Northfield on January 30th and 31, Carleton will be doing the Focus the Nation webcast at 7 o'clock on January 30th, um, and they'll probably have events on the following day on January 31st. Um, those of you that have paid attention to our Focus the Nation stuff, but not to the National Focus the Nation stuff, I want to encourage you to go to the National Focus the Nation website, which is www.focusthenation.org. If you go there today, you'll find that St. Olaf is on the front page of it because we're the first college to Focus the Nation. Uh, so take a look at what they have about what we've been doing here. Um, and then one of the things that Focus the Nation is about is it is about focusing the nation on climate change so that something happens in politics. And when you go to the Focus the Nation website, you'll see that there are five priority ideas there on that website. Take a look at those priority ideas, see which of them you might agree with, and write your congressman, write your representative, write your local representatives. Those are the people that are going to make the kinds of structural changes that are going to get us through the crisis that we face with global climate change. Um, I think that's mostly what I was supposed Oh, the, the other thing I wanted to say was just thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, there are so many people that have had um, a hand in putting this together. Uh, David Orr last night, Will Steger tonight, uh, a whole core of students, many of whom are sitting around in these uh, silly shirts that say, ask me about Focus the Nation, but these people have been active in doing this since October, uh, and we really owe them a round of applause. <laughs> Will Steger, there, is a polar explorer and public intellectual who has taken the lead in Minnesota's conversations on global warming. Born in Richfield, Minnesota, Will has been an immensely successful explorer at both poles of the Earth. He led the first confirmed dog sled journey to the North Pole in 1986 and the first dog sled traverse of Antarctica in 1989 and 90. In 1995, over 20 million students followed his international Arctic project over the internet and saw the first transmission of a digital photograph from the North Pole. And this is wonderful. But for a liberal arts college, what's even more important is the way that Will thinks about what he does. He's written four books, including Saving the Earth, A Citizen's Guide to Environmental Action, and co-founded the Center for Environmental Education at Hamlin University. Like Amelia Earhart, Robert Peary, Roald Amundsen, and Jacques Cousteau, he received the National Geographic Society's John Oliver LaGorse Medal in 1995 for, and this is a quotation, accomplishments in geographic exploration, in the sciences, and for public service to advance international understanding. This was the first time the National Geographic Society had ever given the award 
in all three categories of exploration, science, and public service. Since then, Steger has also won the Lindbergh Award and the Lowell Thomas Award for his creative combination of exploration, education, and advocacy. Recently, Will has made it his life's work to change the world by making sure that human beings don't change the climate too much. The Will Steger Foundation has established Global Warming 101. Write that URL down. Uh, Global Warming 101 is an initiative to inform students and empower citizens and policymakers to get to work on this critical issue. Even more recently, he's been working with Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty to raise awareness of climate issues. And in 2006, Governor Pawlenty appointed Will to the Midwest Climate Change Advisory Group, a panel charged with planning drastic reductions in greenhouse gases in the state of Minnesota. In a few months, Will and six other explorers will take off on an expedition to Ellesmere Island. One of those people is Toby Torleifson, a Norwegian explorer, who will join Will tonight in talking about the purposes of that expedition. Please welcome Will Steger as he speaks to us tonight as an eyewitness to global warming. Thanks, Jim, uh, for the fine introduction. Uh, I want to thank particularly the organizers of uh, Focus the Nation here that put in all the work here behind the scenes since October. This is, this is a fantastic event. I mean, this is very positive. Uh, uh, I was one of the ones that said what was hopeful, and many people, I think, said what was hopeful about the global warming situation is the fact that we had this wonderful event here and had great attendance. We have great attendance tonight. Uh, we're seeing this all around the state. I mean, this is something that's really happening. So people are coming together, uh, engaging socially around this issue, and this is just the beginning of it. Uh, tonight, I, I want to do a couple of things. I want to show you some, uh, via some photographs here a little bit about my history, how I got involved in um, outdoors, and then I'm going to show you my eyewitness account, uh, what I've seen in the polar areas in global warming. It's kind of a polar perspective. It's quite sobering, but I think you should really, uh, it's educational, but I think you really need to see what, uh, what, what we're up against here. Uh, following that, I'm going to talk about what really what we have to do now uh, for, to face this issue. And then following my presentation, I'll probably try to keep it on time, 45 minutes. Uh, Toby will come up, one of my team members. Uh, Toby and I are going to uh, northern Ellesmere Island, which is about 500 miles from the North Pole. Long expedition this uh, uh, March, April, May. We're going to travel about 1,400 miles by dog team. Toby's going to cover that, the team, and our, our objectives. So I'll start with the uh, presentation here. Um, I, um, myself, I've been involved in expeditions all my life. My first uh, major expedition was my first and last motorized adventure. When I was 15, I took a motorboat, a uh, 16-foot boat, down the Mississippi River from Minneapolis to New Orleans and back. And uh, that was a, ended up to be a very expensive trip with gasoline and uh, mechanical problems. Um, I was uh, one of nine kids uh, raised in the suburbs there in Richfield. Richfield was... Uh, uh, pretty wide open suburb, a lot of, lot of wild spaces in the 50s when I, luckily when I was raised there. But um, our parents gave my brothers and sisters and I total freedom. As long as we got a certain grade point average, didn't get in trouble with the law. Uh, I didn't have rules when high school and college, which was really great. So I, I took advantage of that, that freedom and, and started traveling. And that was reflected in the faith my brother, my parents had. And my older brother was 17 and I, and we did that motor trip. But then I started climbing when I was 16 years old, uh, in 1961. Uh, climbing and kayaking, there wasn't such a thing in Minnesota at that time. There wasn't such a thing as a climbing rope or a kayak. You couldn't find one. At least I, 
the claiming that I did, I never found anyone that did it. And uh, I bought a hemp rope in a hardware store, checked a book out of a library called uh, Mountaineering Freedom of the Hills, and learned that way from top rope climbing. But as soon as I had my license when I was 16, uh, I was out of Minnesota and up in the mountains. Uh, I used to climb in the Black Hills, uh, uh, later in the uh, British Columbia and the Canadian Rockies. So got a lot of experience in climbing as a teenager. This is up, some of you probably know us, uh, familiar with this area, Pal Palisade Head up by Silver Bay there on Lake Superior. Great climbing place, uh, only as you know, three hours from the city. We used to set up these complicated traverses and that to get work out our, our rope uh, rope skills. Um, I was uh, particularly interested in snow and ice climbing. I really wanted, I saw myself as a climber getting way into mountaineering. Um, the rock wall climbing was just something for skills, I, uh, something that you did uh, to improve yourself. Uh, but I really wanted to get into the real distant mountains. And this is uh, um, in, in British Columbia when I was uh, 17, 18 here climbing. Uh, later when I was uh, 19, 20 years old, I was very fortunate. I joined a, a very major expedition in Peruvian Andes. Uh, I got in with some good climbers. They were looking for someone to haul the packs and belaying, and I gladly took that job. But I got in with uh, on some, a number of first ascents with these guys. Uh, we climbed this mountain, uh, 20,600 feet uh, first ascent. We did a, a first ascent traverse on this mountain, 18,400. Um, this was in July and August. Uh, great climbing. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to get in with these, these people. I also did a lot of uh, kayaking. It was kind of a toss-up as a teenager what I would do uh, with my life, but I'd be uh, a real professional climber in the Himalayas. I was in, really inspired by Hillary and the climbs in 1953 and 54. Uh, but I also was inspired by uh, the rivers of far north, and I got most of my images from the National Geographic. They got the pictures, and I had the freedom, so I pretty much kind of followed through. But typically, when we were in college, we would start an expedition uh, very early June, we either either ship our gear to the west and hitchhike out, or get someone to drive us. And we put our kayaks in uh, Jasper, Alberta, uh, Prince Prince George, uh, British Columbia, and the Peace River, but basically in the headwaters. And then we would kayak down about 2,700 miles to the Arctic Ocean, and then from there we would cross the mountains, head south into Alaska. This was a, a 4,000-mile kayak trip we took in '69. We ended up. This is in the Lower Yukon River here. Uh, near, the, uh, near the Delta. And uh, one year, a friend of mine uh, at St. Thomas, uh, I, by the way, graduated at St. Thomas College with a degree in geology, biology, and got a, later got a degree, master's degree, so I spent my stint there. Uh, but this guy sat next to me in a philosophy course. I talked him into, after graduation, hitchhiking as far north as we could go until we ran out of road, which we did, and then we built this log raft on a little river and floated into the McKinsey, and then floated, floated to the Arctic Ocean. And then from there, we, since there were no trees, uh, crossing the mountains, we used these, uh, uh, these, these uh, light, small little life rafts to get over the mountains and then back into Alaska. Uh, inspired by the north, I bought some pro wilderness property in Ely, Minnesota when I was 19. Uh, I had this vision of just finding uh, property two lakes from the nearest road. I felt that was the best way of getting into isolation, but yet having some sort of access. And, uh, I'd never been to Ely before. I went up there on a weekend and, and pretty much lucked out, or I don't know if it was destiny or whatever, but I found the ideal piece of property exactly what I was looking for. And I ended up buying uh, this part of the shoreline here for $1,000, um, which was a lot of money uh, back in 64. Uh, tuition at St. Thomas was 60, $640. 
And uh, I used to really scream about that, but that was a, a lot of cash in those days, but nothing like what you paid today in terms of, uh, you know, 30 years later. But I was three miles from the road. You can see the nearest road here. Head across this lake, long, long uh, lake across by uh, canoe in the summer. Made a portage and then built my cabin right here on the, on the far side. Now, I was a suburban kid. Um, I didn't have any skills whatsoever in building. In my house, you'd be lucky to find a screwdriver or pliers. So uh, I pretty much talked to old timers, uh, read a few books. Uh, log cabin building is not that complicated. I learned how to use it chainsaw, pretty much the way I did my whole life, just picked up skills and learned and, you know, put your head to it. And, you know, we're all pretty average people. You can pretty much do what you want to do. It's basically the barriers that you put in front of you that prevents you um, from doing what you want to do and, and also ages you by your barriers that you put in front of yourself. But this, I still live here today, although the last three years I've been pretty much on the global warming trail. I moved up uh, when I was 25 years uh, old after three years of teaching. I, I thought I needed to get my two degrees, a little teaching experience, and uh, this was a long-range plan. I mean, when I was like 12 years old, I was planning to move out of the city, and I, I didn't mind the city. I enjoyed it, had a lot of friends, but I wanted to live the simple life in the wilderness, so I moved here, built this cabin, and uh, for the last, how many years, 38 years, I've uh, been uh, pretty much self-sufficient. Solar and wind, haul water from the lake in the spring, uh, heat with wood. Uh, in the 70s, we raised most of our food. Um, so it was really a great, great type of life. When you live off the road, you rely on help from a lot of friends in the 70s. And always had friends up that came up to help and loved, they uh, liked the work or liked after the work at least. We built gardens, uh, huge gardens. Uh, the, uh, contrary to what you think, the Climate in Ely uh, used to be a cold climate. It's a little warmer now. Uh, it was really excellent for uh, produce. We cut ice in the winter for vegetation, for refrigeration in the summer. We had root cellars to keep our produce from freezing and also keeping it cool in the spring and fall. But it was really the dogs that changed my life. Um, the problem moving into the wilderness is how, is, how are you going to support yourself? Um, I had fought fires the year before, the summer before. I had a little bit of money saved when I went to Ely, but I was fortunate to get a job at Minnesota Outward Bound Schools. And I, Outward Bound was just starting out. I didn't even know what Outward Bound was. I hitchhiked out there, and I was hired on the spot. So I worked there two years, but I had my own ideas. I thought these winter courses should be run with dogs instead of people hauling the sled. So I left there in pretty good terms and started my own school. Um, I ran that for about 10 years during the 60s. Uh, supplied me with, uh, with a livelihood. It also really uh, increased my skills. For almost 12 years, I lived outside in the winter from November up through April, living in tents and base camps, building up dog teams all along. And then the dogs then, eventually by the late 70s, I had a really great dog team together. That then gave me a vehicle to head north. Uh, and that started my dog sledding career in, in the north in 79. This was the uh, Stumble up far north. I traveled about 20,000 miles at my dog team, pre-sponsorships. Nobody knew who I was. We didn't have a radio, uh, no GPS, just compass maps. We took off, lived off the land, uh, traveled the best we could, but traveled some really, really good miles. And that was some really good times in my life because uh, we traveled when it was good, when it stormed, we waited. We didn't have any pressure on us. Uh, no one knew who we were. and. Uh, it was up to us if we got ourselves in any trouble. But then 20 years ago, I did the North Pole, 21 years, 22 years ago, 1986. That's when I kind of appeared on the front page. The North Pole gave me great opportunity, though. It 
launched my career nationally that uh, enabled me to start working in Washington on the environmental issues. I started in 1987, worked with Al Gore, a number of other environmental groups uh, back in those days, the preservation of Antarctica, uh, the ozone problems, and a number of other national, international things. Dogs here were kind of part of my life where it always has been here. And uh, I always have puppies, used to have always have puppies around. I wanted to show you a couple of quick slides here of an Antarctic expedition to give you a flavor of what, what uh, expedition's like, and then I'm gonna show you uh, the eyewitness account. This is an international team of six people from six countries uh, that I organized in 1989 to cross Antarctica, the long, longest possible route, 3,700 miles. Our main goal, in addition to do this historical expedition, was to draw attention to the Antarctic Treaty that was in 1990 was up for review. And what was up for grabs then was whether or not the treaty nations would open up Antarctica for mining. And behind closed doors in the late 80s, they had a formal, for, formal document to open Antarctica up, which would have been a catastrophe for the environment. So our main goal here was drawing world attention, working with world leaders, which we did. And then two years after this expedition, we were able to get that treaty signed. We have uh, some really great people on this team. Uh, Dr. Chin Daho from China right here. He was one of the scientists that received the Nobel Peace Prize with Gore last month. Uh, he was co-chair of the IPCC, which was the governmental body of scientists that uh, really determined the policy. Uh, Dr. Victor Bayarski, very close friend that I've traveled with for about 10 years, and the Arctic glaciologist from St. Petersburg, uh, Russia, and my partner, John Louis Atien, a French physician, a doctor from uh, Paris, France, who I met on the way to the North Pole, Pole three years before that, when we just literally met on the ice about 200 miles out, and that's when we decided to do this trip together. And uh, uh, Jeff Summers from the British Antarctic Survey from Great Britain. Uh, British Antarctic Survey is the science, polar science of Britain. Uh, Jeff was in charge of, the, of managing the dog teams in the 80s, back when they used to use dog teams for support of uh, the scientists before the snowmobile. So De Jeffrey was really experienced, especially in the Antarctic Peninsula and glacial travel with dogs. And then uh, Keizo Fanatsu from uh, Japan, uh, another, another uh, great, greatly experienced person. We had uh, 30 uh, specially bred dogs for the expedition from a northern breed, uh, mostly Canadian and Greenland Eskimo dogs, a little bit of mix of Yukon River Indian dogs, uh, Siberian little wolf. But these dogs were very large, average, maybe 85, 90 pounds. Very thick fur, real tough dogs. Uh, their ideal temperature is 30, 40 below zero. They do not like outside, a day like today, they would overheat if we were running them because of the thick fur. They also love the adventure, love pulling a sled. The worst thing you could do to a dog is to leave him behind on an expedition. So these dogs were tailor-made for the severe cold that we would be in, uh, sub-zero in the, in the hard trip. Very, very good enthusiasm. This was our route here. Uh, or get an idea here of reference. This is South America, uh, Chile and uh, Argentina. On the bottom left here, you have uh, New Zealand, Antarctic continent here. Our route here, I purposely did the longest possible. I never thought of any other route but that. Uh, logistically, it was really complicated. I mean, it was a very, very complicated expedition. We also had to raise $8 million. And two years before this, I was only making like $2,000 a month for 20 years prior to that. So. It meant you know, doing some different things and organizing and getting an international team together, getting the cooperation of Russia, which we needed for supply. And this was during the Cold War. Uh, but 
Uh, the route here, which uh, I will, we had to leave in midwinter, the first winter, uh, ju uh, July is winter, uh, midwinter down there. And um, in order to get across, we, we took us 222 days to cross this. We made it to the eastern Antarctica here right when the winters, second winter started coming in. We had 60 below on the plateau, real windy, uh, but we got up off in the ne next nick of time. Uh, Antarctic continent, uh, this is something that uh, you, if you're young, you should really pay attention because Antarctica will probably dictate, dictate the terms on which society is going to be living here in the next uh, centuries to come, for sure in your, your lifetime. Antarctica is divided into two areas. This larger area is called Eastern Antarctica. It, it is the high plateau, averages at least 10,000 feet high, uh, contains about probably 70% of the world's freshwater ice, maybe, maybe a little bit under that in the world, um, locked up in uh, fresh water, locked up in ice. Uh, it's an area that has not changed yet because of global warming, because of its large mass. Uh, and it's protected by a weather system that circulates around it. Uh, around the fringes on the ice, we're starting to see some changes, but nothing really major. There's no change in accumulation or, uh, or melting of snow yet. But this, unfortunately, is not so for Western Antarctica. Western Antarctica is this section. Now, Western is much different. Western Antarctica is mostly ice. It's not a landmass. You have a mountain range that flows underneath here, but you have these large ice caps, these flowing ice caps that flow uh, down into the ice shelves. And uh, if you're reading in science, there's just an article out yesterday and the other day before about the alarming amount of uh, melting on, on Western Antarctica. Uh, for the first time, the satellite, uh, satellite technology and, and imaging, they've got it, they've fine-tuned it really good the last two years, especially this last year. It's almost like looking at Antarctica and out of focus, and all of a sudden you focus it. And sure enough, what's happening there for the last 10 years as we've been seeing melting where they didn't think it was there. Uh, the features that should concern us all are ice shelves. Uh, this right here, this area here, is a large ice shelf called the Ross Ice Shelf. The ice shelf is an extension of the main mass. You have an ice cap, um, that's massive ice on land, and that flows out into the ocean. Not a glacier, but it's ice that extends out. So the ice shelf floats on the water. Uh, the Ross Ice Shelf is quite thick. I think it's something like 700 feet thick in areas. Um, but it serves a, a real and critical purpose. As long as this ice shelf is intact, it prevents this whole section of Western Antarctica and these major glaciers here that flow down from 10,000 feet. It keeps them in place. So they're not, the glaciers, as long as the ice shelf is holding, it's like turning a, a bottle of wine up with a cork. The wine's not going anywhere. But if you pull the cork out, the water goes. So you want to keep in mind that this is a very uh, sensitive area here. We have another ice shelf called the Ronnie Ice Shelf. It isn't depicted well on this slide, but it's a very large, it's almost the size of Ross in this area. And there's another ice shelf that was an ice shelf called the Larson A and B. Uh, this is in northern uh, point of peninsula here, and that's what I want to show you. Uh, this is the um, Larson A and B. This is the, the peninsula. This is the extension of the Andes Range. The Andes Mountains flows underneath the ocean, basically, uh, by the Drake Passage for about 400 miles. That, that tectonic belt surfaces again and forms the backbone of the Antarctic Peninsula. So these are high mountains. These flatter areas here, that's the ice shelf. That's the Larsen A ice shelf. There's a mountain range, the Larsen B ice shelf right here. So these two are uh, uh, the ice shelves. Uh, 
Uh, both of these are gone now, but I want to show you, uh, these are actually historical pictures because this ice shelf, these pictures you're seeing right now are now open water rather than ice shelf. This is at the beginning of the trip on the Larson A. I normally travel with a team of six people and three dog teams. Uh, each team, dog team of 10, contains uh, the equipment, everything you need for two people. Tents, food, fuel, first aid gear. This is before GPS, so we, had, we would have a radio on each sled. So each sled unit, which, you know, two people, 10 dogs, so totally self-sufficient. So if we lose one sled unit or maybe two in a crevasse, we still can suffice. We still have a self-sufficient unit. Uh, leaving like this on the first day, uh, that sled might weigh about 1,100 pounds. We have enough food for 30 days, maybe 40, 45, depending on how far you have to, have to stretch it out. We always travel with, uh, on skis, similar to Amundsen. Amundsen traveled 100 years ago to the pole. Skis and dogs, that's the, the way, to, way to travel. There isn't, if you're doing really distances, uh, there really isn't any other way to, way, way to travel. Um, so we're on skis. Um, we might be on, on our feet in real rugged areas, but for 99% of the time in Antarctica, it was really pretty good skiing conditions. And um, the, you don't want to ride the sled for a couple reasons. It wears out the dogs, and it's also really cold. The only thing that keeps you warm is your, your constant moving. Uh, this is on the Larson A right now, heading up to the mountain range here to cross that. Uh, we cross about a dozen of these ranges, mostly in the Antarctic uh, uh, Peninsula. And uh, the, cr the danger here going up and down mountains are glaciers. And when you have glaciers flowing, you have crevasses, uh, large crevasses. You can see why. Uh, you could possibly lose an entire sled in a void like this. This was a photo opportunity, real easy. We could saw it right where it was. It probably collapsed, uh, the roof collapsed maybe a, I don't know, a month or more before. So we got a great picture. But most of the time, that, that crevasses are covered, so you don't know it's there. In clear weather, you can, you can tell by a slightly, usually a slightly graying line depression. Uh, you'll know there's a crevasse underneath that. You're always looking for that. You're really trained for that. In fact, it's kind of a sixth sense. You, it's hard, it would be hard for you to see. I mean, I could, if it was a crevasse here, I could point it to you and point it, you wouldn't see it, but if, when you're living in this environment all the time, it sticks out like a red light. But in whiteout condition like this, uh, you lose that, that advantage of being able to see the, the fine uh, depression. So we're, we've got, we don't see here is a couple of people in front uh, with ice axes and roped up, probing ahead, checking our way. This is the way we traveled here. Uh, ropes, roped up skis. Uh, once we're on the ice shelves and ice caps, there are very few crevasses. It's only when you're going up and down the mountains where uh, you have problems. This is uh, uh, the team here at uh, high elevation at where we had a food cache up in the mountains, 7,000 feet. This is a typical day uh, at high elevation, six months out of the year uh, out of this trip. We had these wind chills. Average wind chill here was about 85 below, and, um, which was an average day. Uh, really, you, after a couple weeks, you adjust to the cold, cold very well. Uh, you're not writing about it anymore in your journal. You just, you know, you don't even think about talking about it anymore. But you adjust to it. Uh, there's an art to adjusting to it. But, you know, we have common sense and, it's, and, you're, and you're dressed accordingly. But basically in a super cold like this, you're dressed up almost like a space person. You're totally covered. Any flesh freezes real fast. Or you have a hole in the ozone. We had two months here uh, where we're skiing underneath the hole. The ozone protects us, of course, from ultraviolet. When the ozone's not there, you get a direct shot from the sun, ultraviolet, real intense. Uh, but there too, at the ultraviolet, you just simply cover up. So if you expose your skin, you either freeze it or you fry it. But of course, you can hide out behind a sled where it's leeward and it's not that, the wind chill isn't that bad. But we have a system of, of dressing with mitts where we can uh, lash dogs, uh, set up tents, la uh, 
uh, hook up dogs, tents, so forth. We can do that all with our mitts. So you, the whole system is set up so you don't have to uh, expose your fingers. Our first storm we had on the Larson Ice Shelf, Larson B. Uh, this is, uh, again, uh, at uh, sea level, uh, not high elevation. So it was a relatively mild storm, storm for Antarctica, which would be like 45, maybe 50 mile an hour winds down to about 20, 25 below here. Once we got into the higher elevation on the peninsula, we had actually a 58-day storm that blew almost continual. Lit up at small times, uh, and, but blew most of the time. But at the higher elevation, we had incredible wind chills. The dogs will curl up in a tight knot, and when the snowing and blowing like this, within a half an hour, they're covered up totally. So in a storm, if you walk out, you look for the dogs. They're, they're under, under the snow. We don't disturb the dogs during the storm because it's real important that they stay still. If they, they stand up, their whole fills in, and then when they lay down again, they're on a pedestal. So then they get the blast straight on. So, and the dogs know better than the, to, to break out. Uh, so they're sleeping under the snow. And uh, two days later, in this case, we come out to dig everything out. The dogs hear the footsteps. They're really waiting for people to come out, and they pop up from underneath <laughs> along the routes and ready to go, and they're just excited as can be. Uh, there's always a few of them that are uh, near the sleds in the snow drifts, steeper drifts, and we dig them out, so they're, <laughs> they're patiently waiting. Uh, they can breathe real easy. I mean, they're warm. You know, the only problem they're having is they're like you would be if you were laying in a place, one place for a, uh, two days. You'd be really bored. <laughs> this, is the, this is what an ice shelf looks like. Perfect trap for an explorer. You know, perfect travel, no crevasses, sea level, no altitude problems. And, um, and I want to show you now that some of my eyewitness account. Again, just to refresh, Larson A, uh, the, uh, the mountain range here, the B is right here. Uh, this is January 31st, as you can see, 2002. This is the mountain range right here. Um, you notice where Larson A was. This disintegrated uh, in 1998. That broke up. And uh, you saw some of these pictures at the lecture today. Uh, this is before, before the collapse. Uh, here, again, the advantage of this, why we want ice shelves around is that there's a good distance, 80 miles or more from the ocean to here. These are some of the longest uh, glaciers in the world. Mobile, Mobile Inlet Glacier, I think it's 100 miles, 125 miles long. Now, these are gigantic glaciers that they're moving very slow, glacial pace as long as this is intact. What happened here um, in, the, in the summer of 2002 was a very warm summer again. For the first time in probably a couple hundred thousand years, they had a major, major thaw where about eight, nine, ten feet of the snow and ice melted, which, which gave a lot of water. These are small, these are lakes on the, on the ice. So when you get water on the ice and you're looking at maybe 300 feet of ice, that water then trickles through the ice. As long as ice is solid and dry and frozen, eight inches of freshwater ice when you're ice fishing, you can put a one-ton truck on that without any problem. But if that ice gets wet, it'll, it'll collapse right in on it with a truck. Here on a global scale, you know, 300 feet of ice, saturated wet, it changed the structure. And what happened here, we had a collapse on the southern end, and this, since the whole thing was weak, it set up a massive chain reaction. It disappeared, I guess in 31 days, this entire ice shelf collapsed in the ocean. Uh, the scary part about this is the scientists have been pretty accurate about their predictions of changes in the polar regions. Uh, but this one really caught them by surprise. They didn't think a major ice shelf like this could just vanish. I remember reading this in February of uh, 02. I, it was like in the eighth page of the Star and Tribune. 
uh, Larson ice shelf collapses, you know, and there's a picture of that. Oh, this was a real wake-up call. I mean, it, it really shocked me that I didn't think, I, I taught global warming in my eighth grade science classes in 1967. And global warming is, you know, it's pretty logical. It's not, it's not rocket science. Uh, whenever we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, you know, it's a heat-trapping gas, it's like a sweater, the earth warms up. We knew that, uh, I think a Swedish scientist in 18, well, 1890s discovered that. So we've we known that all along. What the so-called debate has been is where is all the carbon dioxide coming from? I mean, you know, I think a monkey could figure that out if you, if you look at what's happening. Um, we knew in the scientific, in 1995, it was confirmed that humans were affecting the atmosphere. Now we overwhelmingly know, but believe it or not, there's still some sort of a debate going on out there and uh, a lot of uh, oil, oil sponsored uh, skeptics uh, are still stirring up, confusing the public. But the fact is, you add carbon dioxide, the earth warms up. And then it's not just the earth warming up, then all sorts of other things happen. The earth warms up and it starts absorbing in the atmosphere more water vapor. Water vapor is like charging a battery. When you get more water vapor in the atmosphere, you've got energy in the air. So, you know, you're going to get more tornadoes, which you're seeing. I, I gave a talk uh, on Monday, a week ago Monday, in EPA in Chicago. We had, we had tornadoes 50 miles from Chicago. Uh, we're talking to EPA about climate change. And, and they're, they're, they're very receptive, fortunately, at that. So, you know, we're seeing it's the other changes, like the water vapor, you get water vapors are also a greenhouse gas, but the other issue will get warming, uh, the ice shelves breaking, and other things that I'll show you here. This is the Greenland ice cap. The Greenland is a very long island, about 1,600 miles. It contains, I believe, about 11 to 12 percent of the fresh water uh, on the globe locked in ice. And if the Greenland ice cap was to become unstable when in the ocean, we'd see a sea level rise probably around 21, 22 feet. The Greenland ice cap now is still stable. I'm not, not alluding to that, but, but the fringes, which I'm going to show you here, is what we should be concerned with. We crossed Greenland the long route in 1988 unsupported, uh, 1,400 miles. number of reasons. We needed to see dogs had never been run at high elevation at 10,000 feet for an extended period of time, so we needed to see what kind of performance we could expect in Antarctica. Uh, the dogs did really well. And we did, we experimented with a num number of things, a number of other things, but this is the Greenland. Our route was south-north across this way. Now Greenland, uh, some of you may have seen Greenland flying from uh, North America to Europe. Uh, the, the, the height of the ice cap is right in here. And what we're looking at here is 1992. The red areas here represent the thawing areas uh, for summertime. This would be probably July, August. So in 1992, the thawing levels probably, I would guess, would go up maybe about 800 feet. Nothing really major, uh, although global warming was still, you know, uh, I see that 88 is when we start seeing big changes, but uh, nothing major. Now, this is 10 years later, 2002. As the Arctic warms up each year, higher and higher, this warmer air now gets higher and higher. So we're seeing thaws, you know, up to the 3,000 foot level here for the first time. This is 02. Uh, this next one is 05. We're up to now to the 5,000 foot market. I don't have the 07 one yet. The 07, I believe, was uh, a record warm year again. Now, what, what, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that 5,000 feet of ice is going to melt down in uh, 
in a short, a short uh, northern uh, Arctic season, but rather you're going to get a massive amount of quick runoff on the surfaces. And this ice, unfortunately, the water does not run off the streams which go to the ocean. The water flows through streams, then it flows down through the glaciers, through cracks and crevasses, and then it flows at the bottom of the glacier. So you, when you have massive glaciers coming off of ice caps, or all whole ice caps coming down to the ocean, what happens when you lubricate the bottom of the glacier? Well, you get the surging, massive surging of glaciers uh, into the ocean. And this is what's happening now in southwestern and now southeastern Greenland. The last two years, even in the, in the newspapers, I've read about this, that some of these surging has been so violent that it's recorded on the Richter scale, the earthquake scale. Now this is why we have to take this thing very seriously. Uh, scientists are saying that we've got to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, which are the main culprit, 80% by 2050. I, th I would say we'd have to do it by 2040. But we have to drop this carbon dioxide level. The, the most difficult part is right now is making this change, first of all, in everybody's minds and mobilizing everybody. But it's the change of the way we use energy. We are all beneficiaries of cheap energy, our economy, our lifestyles, our great colleges have been built because we've had this great advantage. Now everything we do in energy is going to change, which has a great deal of opportunity because if we can, can seize this opportunity here in the United States, we're going to cause uh, build this economy really strong. And I would say a lot of you will be working in the future jobs in this technology and that. But if we're going at the rate we're going now, we're not going to be able to do it and other countries are going to outcompete us and our economy could go the other way. So we're at a tipping point. We can go a couple of directions. We, we could go this direction here, which would be catastrophic, and along with this would be our economy. Or we could go the other direction where we could hopefully stop the worst of this, which would be preventing Western Antarctica and Greenland from sliding, becoming unstable, and we could build our economy at the same time. Uh, this is the top of the globe here. The, the hazy area here is the Arctic Ocean. Uh, it's about the size of the United States-Mexico combined. It's a deep ocean basin right here at the North Pole. It's 15,000 feet deep of water. It's covered by, uh, 20 years ago in the winter, it used to be an average of eight and a half feet of ice. Uh, now it's about five and a half feet in the winter. Uh, surrounding the Arctic Ocean, we have these great areas in uh, North America and Eurasia, permafrost. Tundra is another name here, permanently frozen ground. Six million square miles of permanently frozen ground. Now, as long as that's frozen, it's like a rock. It doesn't interact with the atmosphere. But a, a majority of this permafrost and tundra is very deep swamp and bog. It's organic material frozen in suspension. But what happens when you thaw out a bog or a swamp? That organic material starts decomposing. And if you take chemistry, it, it gives off methane and carbon dioxide. And methane is 21 times more dangerous than greenhouse gas. So this is serious if this starts thawing. I testified in Congress with Gore in 91, and I talked about the dangers of, of global warming uh, starting to thaw the, the, the permafrost here, and this is exactly what's happening now. There's a couple main issues here. One is uh, infrastructure uh, issue. We, we, there was one village here. There was, uh, one of your professors had uh, some slides of this. There's a village here in we uh, Western Ant uh, uh, Alaska that was built on frozen sand and when that thawed out the entire village went into the ocean. Uh, you have infrastructure like 
Alaskan pipeline, <laughs> highways, uh, villages, towns, everything is built on this frozen ground. What happens when it changes? Ma ma major problem. And then who pays for that? Well, huge. You know, taxpayers, private industry, inflation. So there's an economic issue here, infrastructure, but there's a major issue here if this starts thawing. It is already thawing. I mean, if you were in Nome, Alaska 10 years ago and you said there wasn't anything like global warming, you'd be probably run out of a town on, on the rail because they knew their town was being moved, you know, a couple towns in that area. So Alaska, if you've been in Alaska, we're reading about it in the papers. You know, I gave this talk two years ago. I'd get into a lot of trouble for it. I'd get all sorts of argument. I was scaring people and all this stuff. You're reading about it now every day. So this is not new stuff here. This is what the permafrost looks like in the wintertime. Benign, it's, you can't tell the difference in a lot of areas between lake or bog. Perfect travel area. Probably traveled 20,000 miles in, uh, throughout these uh, permafrost areas. In the summertime, during the short season, uh, you get this beautiful bloom of flowers and grasses. This is uh, cotton. This is in northern Ellesmere Island, about 480 miles from the pole. Uh, Toby and I will be in this area here this winter, along with our other team members. Um, we normally travel long distances until we run out of snow and ice by dogs, and then we continue with dog packs over the mountains and on into the next season. If you were to dig down uh, in, the, in the moss here, you'd go down about 8 inches, 10 inches of moss, then you hit this permanently frozen ground. That's the permafrost I was talking about. This is, uh, the, again, another map. The green here is the deep bog, frozen bog, Minnesota. You can get an idea here of size. This is what the scientists are predicting 50 years from now. If we continue emitting the same amount of carbon dioxide, we're going to lose 50% of this uh, permafrost in the summer. This would be utterly catastrophic. This were certainly would set Western Antarctica into the ocean, or on its way into the ocean. And once Ross Ice Shelf breaks up, you're going to see the rapid rise of sea level. That's what we have to prevent. This is a business as usual amount of uh, CO2 uh, 100 years from now, which would be, I'm sure we're going to avoid this, but this would be the dinosaur area. So you can see here, just visualize, the green here is, uh, think of it as methane. It's in the ground, it's frozen in plants, and now as it thaws, it goes into the atmosphere. So another issue. Uh, this is the Arctic Ocean, uh, very dynamic uh, area. It's a incredible challenge to travel up here by dog team because the ice is always moving. It moves three to eight miles a day in a big storm, it might move 15. Uh, areas will break up on you, and then with the wind shifts, these areas come back together. So uh, real dynamic. This is one of the, it's called a lead here. It's about a quarter mile across. This is a, probably up about 1,500 feet on a Russian helicopter looking down. This is on our, our um, North Pole base camp in 95. We're right on the pole here, uh, drifting away from the pole. The ice uh, started getting under pressure. There was probably a storm coming from the Alaskan side. It was clear here, but the ice usually moves before the storm comes in. This block of ice that we were here, within a half a day, this totally broke up, and uh, we were on our way after that. And this area here was open water in the morning. Uh, wind shifted. This, these two plates came together, uh, giving a pressure ridge, which we now had to ch chop across. We used uh, 1986. Uh, we went to the pole. That was pretty much a normal year. We very cold as usual, uh, 60 below in, in, April, uh, in March. Um, we used the um, blocks of ice like this sometimes to ferry uh, the team over open open lanes of water. This is a 95. 95. We crossed the Arctic Ocean by dog team. Uh, in the 90s, we start seeing big changes in the wintertime up there. Uh, warming temperatures almost 20, 20 degrees above normal. Um, and it was reflected in the danger of travel. We 
put a lot of sleds in the water, it was really quite dangerous. So this is something we didn't have. You always put sleds in the water, even in, in the 80s, but this was a common occurrence here. We had more open water a lot of times in one day in 95 than we did during the whole 56-day expedition uh, in 86. Uh, this is the top of the globe here. Um, here's the key thing here. Uh, north of the Arctic Circle, for the last 5,000 years, we've had a thin covering of, of uh, uh, sea ice and snow. So we had a, uh, even in the summertime, some, uh, the short season, you had some melting of the snow, but the Arctic Ocean, this whole area for the most part, about 95%, 90% of that uh, remained ice. So uh, for the last 5,000 years of climate, five to 7,000 years, has been stable because we've had this reflective area. In other words, in the summertime, 24 hours of light, you know, it's not a normal, normal day, it's 24 hour light, five months long. So for all that energy hitting the top of the globe of this huge area, reflects back off. Uh, and that's a normal thing. It's kept the top of the earth cool, which balanced the warmer equatorial areas. And it gave us stable climate. Now what's happening on this diagram, the top here would have been 20 years ago, where a normal situation, ice, uh, snow energy reflecting 98 to 99% of the energy reflects back to outer space. A little bit of thawing around the edges. This would have been 1990 in the 90s, where we start getting, because of global warming, some thawing. And once you got the thawing, it exposes the darker water, darker uh, land, and you start absorbing. And then that's a domino effect. Believe it or not, this is where we were uh, this last summer, summer of 07, which I think was the tipping point. For the first time ever, the entire Northwest Passage, east to west, about 2,500 miles, was wide open. And it wasn't open for one day. It was open for a very long extended period. 50% uh, of the ice on the Arctic Ocean was lost this summer. And this shocked even the conservative scientists. They had predicted that this would happen at the turn end of this century, 19, 2095 is what they were saying. Uh, but this has now changed a lot. Um, we're looking at a situation by 2020, 2030, you know, right in that age, uh, 10 years one way or another when we're looking at kind of a geological time scale, it doesn't matter. But we're rapidly heading into a place where we're going to lose the summer sea ice, which then is going to change the energy balance of the globe. This is a, what's called an albedo flip, when the reflective surface disappears, giving a darkening, darkening surface, and that's what causes the rapid rise. This is where we're heading for, and uh, this is why we, we ran out of time on this. Uh, what, what, what is that going to affect? Uh, well, we, the bears are, are icons of the Arctic. We all relate to the bear, and I'm sure we all had a teddy bear in that as a child. Um, um, beautiful animal. The bear, 95% of the bear relies on hunting what's called a ring seal. The seal, the seal lives on top of the ice during the summertime, and the bear with its camouflage and its unique smell, sense of smell, is able to uh, sense where these animals are and then, and then uh, uh, creep up and, and, and obtain their prey. But with the loss of the summer sea ice, we're gonna see then the loss of the bear population. We're starting to see that now uh, north of here in northern, uh, southern Hudson Bay. Uh, this population of about 1,200 bears, I believe, down to like a little under 900 bears right now. Uh, we're starting to see a loss of bears in northern Alaska and up in Svalbard, uh, Spitsbergen, north of Norway. Uh, about 60% of the, of the Arctic is still very stable. The population is very strong, so I'm not saying they're dropping off now. But with time, as we lose the summer sea ice, uh, this this uh, animal 
uh, will become extinct. And I, I hate to make this prediction, but, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think in most of your lifetime, you're gonna see this animal drop off into extinction. And you know, people say, well, how do we save it and whatever, we can save it in a zoo. But it's not, this animal can't, it took 100,000 years plus for it to adapt from land to ice. It's not gonna move back and compete with the grizzly bear uh, overnight. Evolution does not happen like at the drop of a hat when you have global warming. So that, that the seals, the ring seal, the walrus, uh, most of the Arctic biome is at threat here. If we go up to two to three degrees, we're at point eight, eight tenths of a degree rise of centigrade. If we go up to two degrees rise, we're gonna see the, uh, the ending of the Arctic biome. So that, that's why we have to look at reducing the carbon emissions. The bear's on thin ice, but we are also on thin ice. We're, we're, we share that, uh, that sa the same uh, situation. Um, I just want to take, um, we traveled last year up in, uh, I don't have pictures of it, but Eastern Canadian Arctic and Baffin Island, which is right across from Greenland on the Canadian side. Uh, Baffin is a very rich cultural area, very traditional. Uh, a lot of the people live off the land there still. And we traveled to five of the communities. Abby was with me on the expedition. We had eight of us. And we went from one village to another by dog team. You can access it by plane or dog team and very rugged mountains and sea ice. It was an incredible venture getting from one to another. Each village then we took time out to interview and talk with the, with the uh, people. We talked with the elders, the hunters, the women. We probably talked to about 100 different people to get their stories. Uh, we documented that. And what we did is we used uh, the Inuit or the Eskimo people's story last year and the year before. Uh, we put a cultural face on global warming in addition to the science. Because science is very confusing to people. And we used the cultural face as a real important tool here uh, in, in um, our, our government, Minnesota government, in the, in the House and Senate last year and the year before to really influence uh, uh, our politicians to put a cultural face. Uh, we worked really extensively in the congregations the last two years. Uh, that's helped us to get into the, uh, uh, the more writer side of the Republican issues. I've been working pretty much with conservatives the last couple of years, which I do not really mind working with conservatives. Uh, we approached it first through the economics, which they ca caught on to. Uh, but to our surprise in the congregations is where it really caught on because for them it was caught on mainly as a moral issue. So what we were able to do in Minnesota, we were losing the vote in the southern suburbs mainly and a little bit in the uh, rural, uh, uh, conservative rural areas. So we worked uh, the southern suburbs, particularly in the con all the congregations we get into, the, uh, the schools, uh, we were, uh, the Rotary Clubs, we were all over. Wherever we could go, we were, we were presenting and gradually got a support. We, came along real well. And with that, we brought plenty into the center more on that party. And last year, uh, on number of the legislation, we got the 80% the cut of carbon by 2050, which we still, we have to implement that, but we have it as a, these benchmarks as a law. We set up, uh, originally we were asking for 20% renewables by 2020. We actually got 25%. So that, that program went really well. Uh, but I want to talk about, just for my last five minutes here, what we need to do. And um, we need to look, I, I look at it two things. We need to do number one, we have to take self-initiative. Each one of us has to take this on ourselves. You know, I can tell you 10 things you can do for global warming, but you can do that too. You, can, you know, you're savvy, you can get on the internet, you can organize, you can connect. But we really need, as individuals, to really take this on. We have a tendency of waiting for a leader and someone else to do it and then we can kind of get on board on the movement and write it and have fun with it. This is not so. This is something that's gonna 
Uh, it's going to affect all of our lives, especially your young lives here. Uh, there's no hiding from this. You can't put your head in the sand. It's human nature when you're, you're hit this overwhelming thing to put your head in the sand and, and just ignore it. There's no ignoring it because it's, it's there uh, and it's there. So the first step is really we have to take on the le our leadership roles in ourselves. And the second part of that, which goes hand in hand, is we really need, need to connect. We need to organize. Um, we have to act fast. We used to say 10 years. We've run out of time. We don't have 10 years. We've got to do it now. And the adults, they're not going to do it that fast. They're so divided in politics and everything else. And now the economy's going down, so they're worried about their money. Uh, global warming is not their major issue. There's concern and there's movement in that direction, but there's not the unit movement that we need. And I'm convinced that it's your generation that's going to do that. And we're, we're seeing it now. Two years ago, we wouldn't have a, uh, three years ago, we'd probably have 20 people here. But we all saw, everybody that was there today at Focus the Nation, all the great talks, the rapport, we see it happening now. We need more of that. Uh, you're setting the pace here right now. Uh, I was a product of the, of the 60s, late 60s, the Vietnam War. That was a great time, actually, uh, for changing everything. But this is really a little different. Uh, it really takes change and, and uh, organization. It's like about 10 people, 12 people really put together the focus of the nation. That's what you can do. Uh, your generation has, you need a couple things for a movement or a revolution. One, we have the cause, global warming, it's obvious. And believe it or not, a lot of the adults still question it. I mean, that's why you, you can't rely on the people upstairs to do anything for you here. We all know it's real. I mean, it's like, and it's not rocket science. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the ignorance that's out there. And, and, and we can try to change that and educate, and we continually do that, and a lot of people are changing over, but we need to move really in mass, and we've got to organize. Look, at the, here's the formula. If you want to change, if you want to change policy, if you want to make changes, you need power. How do you get power? You get power by organizing. It's organizing. And what is organizing? It's action, 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 individual group action. You've got to empower yourself. Next year in the vote, uh, big election year, very big election year, uh, very critical. Uh, we can't wait another election cycle. We waited two of them out here this last time, and we're way, way, way behind. And you know what the college vote uh, last presidential, I think it was something like 17% voted. You know, what would your professor do if you got a 17% on your physics test. And in, when you're in the real world, if you're a 17% person, you know, you're nobody. People, nobody listens to 17%. So what you should do here, and I'll give you the challenge at St. Olaf, you should 90% vote. There's no excuse for it. 90% vote. Okay. Uh, we obviously agree with that, but let's do 90% vote. I'm not just saying that. Let's organize around that. Have, you're one of the most progressive colleges around. You're setting the standard. You're, you have such an advantage here because you've got a community working together on this problem. And it's not a problem you, you do overnight. You continually work on it as a group. You work it from food to energy to every, every way you do it. But you're a trendsetter here. But if you could do a 90% vote here, 
then you're going to have power. Then people are going to start listening to you. And you also, you have the social networks. So organize on those social networks. Get other people. This is, this is a great movement. And believe me, you can be alone in global warming. Uh, the lone straw will be blow over. But once, as you're doing now, once you start unifying, it's really a great thing to be socially engaged. It's, it's energizing. It's a, actually a great moment for you right now. So your job is to move, your job is to act, and your job is to participate. And there's no excuses. And uh, don't wait for someone to motivate you. Motivate yourself. Get your group together and motivate that way. So, and I'm really encouraged by what I'm starting to see. You know, this is encouraging here, but this is happening all over. We met, Abby and I had a, we organized in the high schools, uh, small environmental groups that nobody joined, you know, in the past. Now the enrollments are growing great. So we joined the metropolitan environmental groups and the different, different high schools, and we came together, this is our third meeting, we came together yesterday in Central High in uh, St. Paul. We had over 300. We have another meeting and it's growing. We have a great Focus the Nation group. Uh, let's see, uh, the, uh, we have a, actually if you're in the cities on January 31st, uh, there's a big Focus the Nation that we organize. The first, first Avenue, that's the rock and roll place, that black place. Okay, we've got music there. Uh, it's gonna be at six o'clock. There's gonna be activists like yourself. So come on down and join us. We've got a lot of people on our bandwagon. Everybody's jumping on the bandwagon here to listen. They want to present to you now. We've got Mark Dayton, uh, Senator Mark Dayton, uh, uh, Mark, Mark Ritchie. We've got the mayor from uh, St. Uh, Minneapolis, I think the mayor from St. Paul. Uh, Michael Noble, one, one of the greatest environmentalists in, in the Twin Cities, other people like this. Uh, we've got music, uh, but more than anything, there's going to be your generation there. So that's the 31st. Check our website, globalwarming101.com. And then also uh, on that site, on March 3rd, uh, this is a very important uh, gathering here. We have a forum at Saint University of St. Thomas on March 3rd. I believe it's at 4 o'clock. I got uh, uh, Governor Plenty to agree to meet on a forum basis with students. And I got him to tell us what he's going to do. So he'll put his feet in the fire, but then we're going to have uh, four or five activists uh, from the global warming telling what they're doing. Uh, this is going to be a very important thing because we're going to have a lot of press, a lot of awareness, because to start a movement like this, you've got to get some focus on this. But the fact that we have a governor that 14 months ago would not use the word global warming, now want, he will, he's willing to meet with us now. So that's what I'm telling you about organization, because the, the politicians are now coming to you, but you've got to prove yourself by voting and, and keep doing what you're doing. And um, I don't want to take the thunder away from Toby. <laughs> has to come up after. We're going to gear down here. Uh, Toby, a good friend from Norway, um, he's a historian. You have your master's in uh, polar history. Uh, he's a kite skier, a climber, a kayaker, a sailor. Uh, and Toby, along with uh, five others, are going to join us here on, on an expedition. So, Toby, why don't you come up here and I'll get your slides on board. And uh, it would take us a minute here to get, get our thing going. Okay, thank you. We're all pretty young, as you can see, uh, including Will. But <laughs> I'm, I'm the oldest of the young ones. So. We got on the left here, we got uh, Sigrid Ekran, who's uh, the other Norwegian team member. And uh, she's currently living in Alaska uh, in a cabin without running water or 
Uh, she's hunting for food uh, and she's preparing uh, for a second Iditarod. rod. Uh, last year she was uh, best rookie and best female musher. Uh, very talented. Uh, so her life is very social. I think the expedition is going to be uh, the most social period of her life so, <laughs> so far. But, uh, yeah. So that'll be a challenge for her for sure. Uh, uh, we got Will here, of course, uh, and then we got uh, Sarah McNair Landry. Uh, I'll have to introduce her uh, together with her brother, Eric. Uh, these two, uh, contrary to what uh, Abby has described them as, they're not normal. Uh, Sarah was the youngest uh, person to ever walk to the South Pole. Uh, she got there when she was 17. Uh, the, between them, they got both poles. They've uh, just kited uh, Greenland this summer almost set a new world record, uh, uh, kites, kite sailing. They're probably the best kite skiers uh, in the world at the moment. Um, really, really, uh, really good people. Uh, we got uh, Ben Horton here. He's uh, our US representative uh, next to Will. Uh, he's a great photographer. He's a young explorer of National Geographic. And he's made a great photo documentary of shark poaching. Um, uh, real, real good guy. Uh, the person who's not here is Sam Branson from Britain, who was also on the last expedition uh, to Baffin Island with Abbey. Uh, but uh, the point to make here is that we, we are an international team, and um, we got four countries represented, but uh, we're all working on the same coast now. So Britain and uh, Canada, Norway and U.S. usually competed when it came to polar exploration about uh, getting to the poles first and... Uh, so forth. Uh, now we put that behind us. Uh, so we're now hoping to work uh, on the issue of global warming. Yeah, just to uh, give you an idea where Ellis Morallen is, it's uh, highlighted in yellow there. Uh, so just west of Greenland and uh, 500 miles from the pole. Um, and this is a more detailed map. Uh, we'll be coming off from Resolute Bay uh, around here. And we'll travel. Uh, up here, uh, this is uh, Elif and oh, Munrignes Islands. Uh, and uh, we'll probably cross across Oxford Highway. And then we'll uh, travel around the northern coast of Ellesmere, coming into the Lake Hasten region right here, which I'll get back to in a second, and uh, finish the expedition in Eureka about uh, June 1st. Um, why are we doing this route? This is because uh, the Isles Ice Shelf, uh, I mean, up here in Northern Ellesmere, the last ice shelves in the Northern Hemisphere are located up here. Um, and in last summer, uh, the Isles ice shelf disintegrated then uh, broke off. And uh, two big pieces of the Isles then drifted down here uh, before it divided itself into two pieces that are now frozen on either side of Elif Ringness Island right here. So we'll come up and we'll document uh, these remnants uh, and hopefully create some effective images of of what's going on there. Um, we'll then continue through Oxford Highway, uh, and that might entail some real exploration to what we understand uh, through here, and uh, go around and look at the last ice shelves up here and document that. Uh, move in here to the Lake Hazen region, which is a microclimate, real interesting place. Uh, the uh, Peary Caribou is, is living up here, and there are now less than 2,000 left of those. Uh, so they're uh, red listed. The reason for that is that uh, 
the falls are getting slightly milder, meaning that uh, the wet snow comes on the ground. When that freezes, they can't get to lichen. Um, so uh, they're, they're about to go extinct um, up here. Now we'll come down uh, in your week, and I finished the expedition here in your week uh, about June 1st. Uh, yeah, this, uh, this guy, Otto Sverup, um, he's one of the three great uh, Norwegian explorers, but he's uh, the least known of them. Um, the reason for that is perhaps because he was a scientist, not someone who went for the pole. Uh, he spent uh, four years, I don't know if you recognize this, but this is his map of Ellesmere Island. And before him, everything on the west side here was unknown territory. And these red spots are his winter harbors. So he spent four years. We're going to spend two months. He spent four years in this region mapping out this entire area. So that's why the Norwegian place names are all over here. We got this place is called uh, Krapfjord, for example. Uh, <laughs> they got a, a sort of run out of name. But anyway, the point with this is uh, that uh, for, uh, every year this expedition was going, it used 25% of the Norwegian uh, university, the total university budget. So it was a, yeah, it was a massive scientific undertaking. Right? And the role that these explorers have can only be compared to that of today's astronauts. Right? There are people that really push the, uh, push the boundaries. Six young scientists followed straight up on this, and they published uh, 32 scientific papers. That really changed the way we think about uh, the world. Um, the point to make, I think, is a nice analogy to it, is that... Uh, sorry that um, we really need to think of what we're about to embark on now as sort of a new moon landing. I mean, it is possible to do what seems impossible. And I think Otto Sverup is a man that really, and his team and his, the scientists, they're really a good example of that. Now this uh, last little thing here, uh, he traveled with dog teams, uh, very similar to what we're doing in skis. Uh, so the way we'll be traveling is, is in the old historic manner. Uh, but we'll be using modern technology, so our whole expedition will be using solar power. So every dispatch, every uh, thing we do on a satellite phone, our iPods, everything on the expedition is going to be powered by solar energy. So we hope to set, it, set an example at, uh, like that. If uh, we can do it up there, uh, there's certainly other places you can do it, so, <laughs> including down here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is the most famous polar vessel uh, in the world, perhaps, is the Fram, which is now in Oslo. Uh, and um, another point to make is that there were two successful explorers that used Ellesmere Island uh, in this period of time, and that was Otto Sagrip, and it was also Robert Perry. And the reason why they were successful is because they integrated Inuit technology and Inuit survival skills into their operations. So, Dog teams, you know, uh, they are really uh, uh, an Inuit, the Inuit way of traveling, and they've been successful traveling around there for 4,000 years. The other point I'd like to make just to end this is that we've known about the areas that we're going to traverse for a little more than 110 years, not longer. And in that time period, we dramatically changed them. Uh, so, uh, well, we uh, maybe won't report on... Uh, 
uh, very, uh, you know, sort of a very optimistic account. Our eyewitnesses account from this expedition won't be as happy. I hope to, and we hope to post on our webpage uh, action stories that go along with what we report from the expedition. And we need people like you to contribute on that. And I'm pretty sure we, there's going to come some on this on the webpage. So. And thanks for having us here. It's been a great uh, pleasure and a real motivation for the spring. Yeah, yeah, if there's any questions, uh, we'll answer them now. Yeah. Okay. We've got a couple of minutes for questions there. If anybody, you have to shut them down and then I'll repeat them. We can hear them. Any, anybody? That thorough, huh? Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, there's still as much adventure as there was 20 years ago. I mean, there some areas have been, I was fortunate to cross Antarctica. It was kind of a geographical first, but, uh, but there is so much to explore. It doesn't have to be the Arctic. It can be almost any fields you, you want to go into. Uh, the technology, all the new technology that's being developed, the biofuels, this is all a, a new type of a frontier. But I tell you, in the north, if you want to explore as a polar explorer, there is... Uh, you just go north of here, 700 miles, uh, there's an incredible open land. You can go 2,000 miles without seeing a person, so there's plenty of things to still do, mountains to climb. And just because someone might have climbed something before or did uh, something like that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's, uh, it's not an adventure. There's all sorts of different, we always look at kind of different spins or different ideas of, of type of travel. Right now, there's a real opportunity for kite skiing where you, you you, you're pulled with skis, uh, kites, pull your ski and your sled. Uh, there's areas in Antarctica that haven't, very few times have been explored. That's all open up now, all Greenland. Uh, I mean, if you really want to do polar exploring, look at uh, Sarah McNair, 21 years old. I mean, she's doing all these things. And we're going to Antarctica a couple years from now, too. And uh, there's all sorts of frontiers to do. So no end to the venture, uh, especially in, as Americans, we have access to so much of it. Okay, well, we'll be up front here if you want to come down and talk. Thank you. <laughs>